You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Hello and welcome to the Enormo Cast. This is your host, Chris. Hey. Hey, dude, it's me. Wait, what the? Mr. Midlayer, bro. Ooh, thanks. Little dank in here. Wait, who the hell are you? I'm your midlayer. The layer between your base layer and your shell. It's the most important layer of layers, in my fleecy opinion. Anyway, what are you doing? I'm making a podcast in my cold basement. Huh. What, is your mom going to get mad if you turn up the heat, Mr. Podcaster? Yeah, hilarious. It may be a basement, but at least it's my basement. Anyway, I'm kind of busy. What do you want? Well, I just wanted to tell everybody about the mid-layer, man. The mid-layer is the most useful layer in your closet, bro. Perfect for exercise, climbing rock or ice on dry, chilly days. Of course, keeping you warm and cozy under your shell, or just hanging around. Well, you do get a lot of wear in my life. That's because I know I'm your favorite, bro. I'm a black diamond coefficient hoodie. Warm, great movement, slim fit under your puffier shell, and I make you look like a fine figure of a man. Or maybe the captain of a starship, I can't tell which. But I do make a stylish scene at any occasion, or at least any occasion you'd want to go to. That's pretty true. But check this out. Black Diamond has a whole line of coefficient fleece. Full zip, quarter zip, pullover, LT quarter zip, LT vest, or some other mumbo jumbo. It's all there at blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite local shop, bro. Coefficient fleece is like wearing actual sunshine on the bleakest of days, my dog. Do people actually go to stores anymore? They should. A good climbing shop is the soul of the sport. Anyway, you should get back to work. The people want their spray. Well, thanks for stopping by, bro. You know I do love my coefficient hoodie from Black Diamond. Love you too, man. How about a hug? Bring it in, bro. The high-flying monsters of Sportiva Rock Shoe lineup return this weekend to your local crag for the Enormacast Back to Spring Monster Sending Season. Come see the La Sportiva Solution lead the charge as the greatest sport climbing and bouldering beast of all time. Or watch as the 10,000 horsepower Testarossa burns down your project. The new and improved Katana Lace-Up will blow your mind and don't be fooled by the dainty Sportiva mantra. It's smearing and grabbing power plays rough with those gym holds. Come for the leather, but stay for the midfield halftime show of the new Squama Vegan, all the heft without the harm. Sportiva has it all, from jamming to smearing to edging to hooking. This Sunday and every Sunday from here to eternity. Get your feet in any of these fueled up high octane climbing shoes at Sportiva.com or your favorite local shop. And crush your project! <coughs> Sportiva.com. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the. Uh... The Normo Dome, whatever it is, it's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place that side of town. That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. I'll see. You really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, La Sportiva, and with support from Maxim Ropes. Maxim has been keeping the normal cast off the deck since 2012. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com 
and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enorma cast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is March 27th. 2023, about 10.30 here in Colorado, and this is episode 260 of the Enormacast, a conversation with Kenyan climber Peter Natuli. And Peter has a much longer name that he pronounces for us in the interview, but he hands out this shorter version of it for lunkhead American English speakers like myself. Thank you very much, Peter, for doing that. Anyhow, this one's a bit off-piste. I reached out to Peter simply because I enjoyed his Instagram page, Afro Vertical. It is amazing. If you guys are Instagram people, please click over there and follow Peter. You've got climbing, of course, but you've got all this amazing tribal stuff, interactions with wildlife, blood drinking. Yeah, there's blood drinking over there. We, we mentioned that in the interview. I don't push him too hard on the blood drinking, but yeah, it's all part of the game for Peter. Um, but yeah, I took a chance, hit him up on Instagram. You know, he does some videos on YouTube as well. He's got a YouTube channel, Peter Natuli. And uh, yeah, it was enough for me to be like, yeah, this guy's charismatic. He's got his feet deep in the Kenyan climbing scene. Um, I think I'll uh, see what he has to say. And it was fantastic. And I appreciate it. I enjoyed every minute of this interview, um, connecting all the way to Kenya. And one of the things I really enjoyed, this angle that we really talked about, was this idea of these Kenyan climbers taking ownership of Kenyan climbing. And like a lot of places in the world, especially these formerly colonial places, Europeans often did the very earliest climbing. And even in more modern times, you know, Europeans on vacation bring in some bolts and put up some roots. But in Kenya, the local climbers have really taken charge and kind of just taken over the scene and made it their own. And that's a very big part of uh, Peter's existence there is being a truly deep in it Kenyan climber. The other thing we talk a lot about is warrior culture, tribal warrior culture, which I don't know, we kind of dance around here in in the climbing world in in the U.S. or in North America and, uh, you know, this warrior's way type stuff. But here are these guys that are actual tribal warriors and approaching climbing with some of those attitudes, those ritualistic attitudes and connecting it to their past and connecting it to their sort of sacred ideas of the land. Yeah, it's awesome. It's totally awesome. So I hope you guys really enjoy this one. And another cool thing that happened is I had sort of occasion or whatever. I just kind of decided to take a look at uh, the music of the region, uh, Samburo music, Kenyan music, past, present. And uh, man, that was awesome too. So if you dig on this whole vibe in this one, uh, yeah, go down that rabbit hole too. I mean, just the funkiest. They were kind of a a reggae place for a long time and just like really cool funk out of the 70s and 80s. And then, of course, the tribal music. And it's it's just all awesome. And YouTube's like full of it. So go down that rabbit hole too, if you will. I dropped a little piece in here. um, But God, it's so good. So good. Okay, enough preview of the interview. Um, Don't give away all the good stuff. Anyhow, but a quick piece of business is that Five Point Film Festival here in Carbondale, Colorado is coming up in April, the third weekend of April, like the 19th to the 23rd or something like that. Tickets are on sale, and I'm going to be doing a couple things 
First of all, on Saturday morning, looks like there's going to be a screening of Real Rock's Resistance Climbing, the film that Andrew Bishrat helped make about Palestinian climbing. There's going to be a screening with some very special guests as well, and I'll be leading a panel afterwards about that. It's going to be really cool, I think. And then also my old band is getting back together, getting the band back together. The Davenports, the Smooth Rock, late 70s, early 80s band. It's playing that afternoon, Saturday, 4 to 6, free, outside the rec center here in Carbondale. So if you're in the area, coming up for that, come check it out. It's a lot of fun. It's a good band. It's a good band. No African music, but it's still a good band. Okay, let's do this. Conversation with Kenyan climber and guide Peter Natuli. Most people know me as Peter Naituli, but I got many names. It's like my all my names are Peter Muambi Naituli Mtolatia Loinwa. Awesome. Yeah, Naituli, Naituli is the one yeah. which, which I've written and sent to you. How does it come to be that you've got so many names? Uh, it's just the it's just the way it is in certain parts of the country and there's some extra ones because of I've also spent time in a different community near my village and they've basically given me a name from those areas. <laughs> so it's oh, like awesome. an extra one. But from home in the in my dad's village it's got three names the Mwambi, Naituli, which is my dad's name, and then Mtolatia, which is one of my other names. So Peter is the Christian name or the English sure. name, which most people have in Kenya, at least one name like that. So, <laughs> yeah, that's the easiest one. Well, you know, I talk a lot on here about how my American mouth can't get around a lot of this stuff. So I pre, I appreciate the um, you 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 know having this convenient name for me to use. Um, but we'll keep yeah. all those other ones on there for other people to hear them. So. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. I, I was saying before the mic started that I just kind of happened onto your Instagram and, and that's all I really know about you. And so I kind of just took a chance that you might be interested in doing this. And, and, um, it certainly seems like you have a lot to talk about. Um, I really like kind of your interface on, on Instagram. I mean, it's partially playful about climbing, but also you seem to take it very seriously. And, and I also, I mean, I like the fact that you've, you know, you very much connect it to your country and to your roots and, and, um, you know, to the tribal areas that you're in when you're climbing. And, um, so it was really compelling to me and, and that's kind of why I got in touch with you and also wanting to talk to a local in a place that I know nothing about. Um, <laughs> we, we sort of, as travelers, you know, I, I've traveled all over the world. I haven't been to Africa to climb, but, um, you know, we dip in and we see, a little very narrow view of a community or of a climbing scene <clears throat> when we're traveling like that. And um, it's always good to talk to someone who seems to have their their feet very deep in it. So, um, you know, I, I have had this question that I've asked a lot of climbers on this, and it's sort of open-ended. You can interpret it the way you want. But, um, you know, if asked, what kind of climber are you? I mean, it's very interesting for me because since I was young, I've always been very 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 physically active and and just enjoyed being outside and i really liked contact sports i still do i used to play a lot of rugby 
I got into MMA and wrestling sort of at an older age, sort of more recently. Ah, but yeah, climbing in general is nice for me because it was very physical and very much in nature. And the climbing here in Kenya, most of the time you're in places with a lot of wild animals. So it was just perfect for me to just do this thing and to interact with these wild animals. So what kind of a climber am I? That's aye, aye, aye. It's like I'm not as serious about climbing as a lot of people think. I'm sort of that climber who I climb passionately to make a living. I do it for fun. I do it for exercise. But it's very playful for me. It's a playful way to make a living. It's a playful way to exercise. But it's it's rarely very serious. Sometimes it's serious when I have a very serious objective. But otherwise, it's just just a bit of fun. And I do every single discipline under the sun I've done pretty much. I've done alpine climbing. The first two disciplines of climbing I learned was trad. And then that pro- that went to alpine climbing. And then bouldering sort of works because I like to do big dynamic moves at the same time. I have more of the build of a rugby player or sevens rugby player than a climber. When it comes to pulling on small, tiny holes, I think I'm slightly on the heavier side. And I've started being more serious at training my fingers just because I've realized I'll start really injuring my fingers. Just doing these big moves onto tiny holes with sometimes 80 kilos on me. Sometimes I'm a bit lighter. That's the heaviest that I get. But I do everything. I boulder, I free solo, I sport climb, I trad climb, I do big walls and I do alpine stuff and even ice and all those things i learned to do them in kenya yeah all around that's a that's incredible well you know i'm gonna push back a little bit on on that you don't take climbing seriously or or it's not like a major <laughs> part of your life because, not like super super you know, for, serious yeah i know but first of all i mean t- someone who does all the disciplines you know that that means you've you've had to spend some serious time in the mountains and, course, and on rocks yeah. to to become proficient and all that. Plus, you just dropped in this little uh, moment of talking about free soloing, um, yeah. which I think we'll circle back to. But um, I don't think you can, you know. And I watched some of your videos, and I I didn't get get time to see it all, but I watched um the the documentary of of climbing on Mount Kenya with um free soloing barefoot. So, um, yeah, so like I said, I'm going to push back just a little bit about seriousness because those look like serious endeavors and obviously the consequences can be serious. Um, but again, we'll, we'll get back to the soloing thing. Sure, sure. Um, one thing that again comes through in, in what I, what I do know about you with watching some of these films and things is that the fact that you're, you're in Kenya, um, you just, you know, with a little pride said that you learned all these things in Kenya. Um, and that seems to be a big part of, of, you know, what you'd like to talk about and what you kind of put out there is that, um, these things didn't come from outside, but you, you found them in the country and, um, you're sort of pridefully a Kenyan climber, which is, I think the main reason that I've, I've, I like said, all right, I got to talk to this guy. So tell me a little bit about that feeling and, and what part of, you know, your climbing identity it is that these things happen in Kenya and you're, and you're sort of pridefully, you know, I learned this stuff in Kenya. In the beginning, before I started knowing about the greater climbing community, it was 
it wasn't such it's sort of now when i know more about the greater climbing community that is like wow you know there's huge gyms and things outside and it's and so much developed climbing and sponsorships and and uh, access to gear and all those things is it's a lot more apparent to me why it's special that there's a climbing community in Kenya. When I got into climbing, that wasn't the case because I just knew, I just knew this country and the climbing here. I knew those climbing in other places, but I mean, until I really got into it, I didn't really think so much about it because the main thing that pulled me into climbing is a mountain close to my dad's village, which is Mount Kenya. It's Kenya's highest mountain, and there's it's five thousand two hundred meters high. There's snow on it, so that used to really fascinate me as a boy so as soon as i got the opportunity to climb and to get into it was my focus was that mountain i wasn't thinking of anything else just getting to that mountain and it's over time that i've come to appreciate sort of the the advantages and the not advantages of being a climber in kenya but the main thing for me is i have a lot of pride in being part of a community that's very much growing the local participation in the sport is growing from actual kenyans it's this is the point in time in history when that's really really happening and also when i look back myself and some of my other kenyan friends who climb at at least at the level we do is what we've been able to do with this and the way we've been able to get training and the way we've sort of pushed our careers forward I take a lot of pride in how we were able to do that with the kind of resources that we had from the beginning. The, from the side of passion and from the side of sacrifice to pursue this thing, we put a lot into it to sort of get to where we are now. And I could talk about this thing for a very long time, but more or less those are my feelings about it. and whether there's some disadvantages or there's things, the infrastructure and the opportunities and whatever could improve, I'm very much happy to be a climber in Kenya at this time because I can very much be a part of the growth and a part of the forming of a bigger community. And basically anyone that's around right now that's a Kenyan climber, I think it's, it's a very special thing in the future when we're looking back at this period. It's very nice and there's a lot of unclimbed rock and we can now go and put up these roots and name these roots and they're of significance to us and the era of people of purely people coming from outside to name these roots and to put up roots on on our native lands that period is now it's different because now we all we are also able to do that now ourselves many of us yeah so I could talk a long time about that. Well, we've got we've got a while. Um, we can come back to it too. But I mean, I'm sure it's gonna gonna be throughout this conversation because uh, you know it, it seems to be such a pillar of who you are as a climber and and what you're trying to do. And yeah, it's interesting. I've been talking to you know some Indian climbers over the last couple of years, uh, dipping into what we were calling these nascent climbing communities, these places like you said that are just kind of on this this moment of of becoming a climbing community that's not necessarily like you said just people from outside the country which is you know sort of traditional i mean even talking about mount kenya you know that that's you know was i'm sure um i don't know who specifically climbed it first or whatever but it was probably europeans and 
So yeah, it's it's an important. I always think of it as this important milestone or whatever when when a when a climbing community realizes that they have this you know this ability, this power, this like uh, place to make history in their own country. And it's, I, I mean, just looking at your face while you're talking about it, it's obviously a very special place to be for you, um, being able to do first ascents and, and uh, call them your own. Indeed, yes. And interestingly, on the topic of Mount Kenya, so the first person, sort of first recorded ascent of the mountain was Halford Makinda with two French guides. And recently, I mean, it's... It's very. It's most likely that this guy and the two French guys were the first people to stand at the highest point. But recently, there's this story that I've been digging into because in the past I was questioning its legitimacy, but it's grown on me more and more. About I don't know if it was a preacher, but there was someone again from my village of my my area, basically my part of the country, Meru, who went up the mountain in, I don't know if it was the 70s or the 80s, barefoot, and free soloed the second highest peak on the mountain, which is very close to the highest point. He free soloed it without shoes, apparently was seen with a helicopter, the rescue team reading the Bible on the top of Nelion, and he was able to find a way down. Somebody who doesn't even climb, and people are thinking, this guy is mad, and... Yeah, he was going up because he said he'd been sent a mission from God or something like that. But it's pretty legit of the from what I've looked at, and it does bring that question: is could it have been possible that some crazy, crazy person back in the day from one of these villages, who knows, on some sort of a, a mission, was able to brave the elements the way this guy did with hardly any equipment? and climb this thing just like that, barefoot, free solo. And a similar thing also happened in a different climbing area. Another story that's similar happened in in a national park in the Rift Valley where there was a certain tower of rock which the British climbed with ropes, and then a Maasai warrior went and climbed it. I don't know if it was in his tire slippers, but he climbed it <laughs> without a rope uh, just to sort of prove it can be done. So... Yeah, there's there's debate to be had. It's possible, it's difficult, but who knows? Somebody could have climbed Mount Kenya before, but it's you can never know. Well, it's it's interesting because in other parts of the world, religious fervor has gotten uh, people to the tops of things. You know, hundred years ago, hundred fifty years ago, um, monks. I mean, there's stories in Europe of monks back in the day doing things like that. So. Yeah, if you've got that kind of fire in you and, and you know, frankly, you're not worried about dying because, well, yeah. you're going to go to heaven. You're not a uh, holy mission. You know, that probably is a good, yeah, holy mission is probably a good motivator. So it feels like that sounds, it sounds very true. Um, so, and uh, yeah, and then, you know, these things could have been done and there'd be absolutely no recorded evidence no. to find or anything. So um, it's certainly, yeah, it's certainly, I think, awesome to put that in into the the thinking in, in Kenya anyway. So it, it's pretty cool that you, you know, you're, you're by this mountain. It inspires you. I mean, that, that really is the history of climbing um, for thousands of years is simply people like you looking up and saying that that thing needs to be climbed. I mean, whatever it is in human psyche that, that makes people do that. You also talked about a we 
you know, you were talking about cl- your your friends who are climbers. Yeah. Um, how did you come to find a we? How, you know, if you're a kid in this village, you're looking at Mount Kenya, certainly people around you are probably like, yeah, climbing that is a waste of your time. You know, you have to do other things. <laughs> you know, every climber in the world has faced that too. So how did you come to uh, become a climber and find this community, gather these people around you? I grew up personally in the Rift Valley, but we'd frequent the village to meet my family members on my dad's side. And every time we were driving to the village or we're there, when there's no clouds, because the mountain is mostly in clouds, when it opens up, you look at it, it's very fascinating snow. Those I just wanted to go to that snow. But that didn't become a possibility until many years later when I was in high school and I went on a hiking trip to the mountain. There's many, many peaks, so I wasn't actually climbing it. But it's basically a series of events after that of like at that point, I still wasn't very keen on climbing as sort of this is my thing. This is what I want to do. I just want to be there. It was, <laughs> I just want to stand on that rock. It's very fascinating. And <clears throat> that's what got me to start trying climbing in this place called Hell's Gate and then eventually getting the skills to actually get to the top of that mountain. And it's in that process of me having this single objective of getting to the top of Mount Kenya that I just learned the the most important skills that I learned. And then after that, it was just a period of doing progressively more dangerous things or more basically trying to get to more locations that were harder and harder to reach. And it took a while to really meet people that were very passionate about it. I know there's one guy I climbed with a lot on Mount Kenya who was also a guide because I got into guiding when I was 16 or 17 to sort of help fund the climbing and to just make my time on the mountain more sort of efficient and and affordable by actually working there and then having some extra days to do my own stuff. But so that's one of the whiz. And then there is in the north. So now north of my village, there's a different mountain called Ololokwe where a climbing community was born not that long ago of local warriors. And similar age to myself, the same generation and culturally very similar peoples to my particular clan. And so I just got along very well with those guys and they already had some training when I met and we've together, we've just done more, 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 more. We've started putting up roots and we've started pushing ourselves significantly and doing, spending a lot more time climbing that's not related to, to guiding and to making money off it just doing it for the sake of adventure and those that's that's now the we those guys that's how i came into contact with with them just over time as a kenyan who's learning now i want to go to more places more mountains in my country that's how i bumped into this community you mentioned earlier the you know this this maasai who climbed um this thing back in the day and you just also said, you know, these warriors from this other clan. So yeah. how does that, uh, you know, the, how does this idea of the warrior sort of culture, um, you know, it's not something we obviously throw around in our vocabulary here in the States, but is that, is that something that fits into your, your attitudes towards climbing um, and who you are and, and who you are as a group? For sure. At least. And also, when... what does it mean? Yeah. 
Well, it's getting... I can't get too deep into it because that's a proper rabbit hole, but there's many communities <laughs> in Kenya. This that... show's all about rabbit holes, man. Go <laughs> down. Rabbit holes. Okay, Let's we get can, in there. At least to a degree. We've have, we okay. have more than 40 tribes in Kenya, and sure. the particular tribes that I'm pulling interest to is the Ma communities. So most people, when they think of Kenya, they think of the Maasai, which are usually tall sure. people with spears. So Ma communities, those are the Maasai, the Samburu, which now neighbor us. Then a lot of clans or tribes in some of these other communities have overlap with the Samburu. For us, the overlap is more with the Samburu than the Maasai. But it's sort of, it's like that. And up until recently, not very long ago, Kenya, a lot of people were living the full traditional way of life where young men up to a certain age are warriors. And they have warrior responsibilities once you enter that stage of manhood from a boy to a man. There's certain things you're supposed to do, there's certain initiations, there's certain responsibilities that you go through now in the bush. And yeah, that's basically now on the side of at least men in these tribes. And so the Samburu are one of the tribes, particularly in northern Kenya, that are really still living very much in that way, as much as times are changing, and they've changed in most other places, including my village, sort of one generation ago, is when the biggest change happened. So that's a generation of my father. But it's still it's still very much a thing now in places like Samburu. And it's very nice, at least for me, particularly when I got to go there and spend some more time in Samburu, it was it was just something I hardly, I just dipped my feet a little bit in that stuff when I was growing up. It wasn't a huge part of my life. It was, it was a small part of my life, but it very much, it very much drives you when you're entering a certain age to, at least for me, to pursue difficult things or these dangerous things that I was doing when I was in Mount Kenya. Sometimes I just accredit it to that thirst for doing those serious things and proving to the, the this old the older generation that you that you're a survivor and you can survive this, you can do that, you're a very capable young man, etc. Right. etc. That was at least part of it. But the climbing that I've done in the in northern Kenya has been perfect because now I'm surrounded by <laughs> other guys in that stage. They very much just buried myself in in the things that we're doing there. And it's not just the climbing. The climbing is a very literal reflection of that warrior spirit of warrior culture of bravery and, and strength and skill. But we do many things. We wrestle this traditional wrestling that we do there, very competitive. And the herbs that we're drinking when we're there, blood. We drink a lot of blood in northern <laughs> Kenya. It's a huge part of the diet, raw blood. Yeah, that could, could be go. your that could be your contribution to the world of training. You know, I, I, <laughs> I don't know if you how much you pay attention to uh, to training, but it's like everybody has a new training method. So that could be yours. Mm-hmm. You could think about that. Um, it certainly has to be pretty good. Good for power. Yeah, <laughs> do that. Um, but yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's interesting because it's. I mean, I don't know. It's sort of changed over time, but I think that this kind of young man initiation, this young man going out and testing themselves 
against rock climbing, um, you know, for better or worse, was and continues to be a long tradition in climbing. But what does um, what does it reflect as far as um, uh, the women in Kenya or, or any women joining um, the climbing community? I, I noticed you did have a a few posts about that, and it's something we've talked with. I've talked with again these Indian climbers. Both the the Indian climbers I've talked to um, are women, and they're you know working really hard to bring women into the sport. So, um, how does that reflect in your experience? Yeah, there's many women getting into climbing in Kenya, more far more than men. So, usually, so really? my climb me reflecting now as there's not a lot of instructors or guides in Kenya. And the main, at least for me, my main business model is I get someone who's a hiker because the hiking community is gigantic in Nairobi. They are tired of hiking. They want to climb Batian, which is the highest peak on Mount Kenya. So that means they need to learn how to climb rocks. And that's when they get in touch with me. And most, the biggest demographic for me is Kenyan women in their sort of late 20s into their 30s and their 40s. <clears throat> yeah. I don't know whether the gentleman at the Nairobi, at least, yeah, mostly it's, it's the ladies, and it's very good to see, and some of them have progressed further, where they're not so much needing necessarily the services of a guide unless they're doing something very, very extreme, but they're at a level where they're starting to buy their own basic equipment and just teaming up with other ladies or other climbers who climb for fun and they're just going and climbing. Yeah. So I can definitely say here there's in terms of leisurely climbers, people who are climbing for fun, I see more women than men when it comes to Kenyans, for sure. Most of the males that I know or the area where you have more men than women are people who are making a living off of mountains and instructing yeah right well that's pretty fascinating um it's not something i would expect but uh it sounds, <laughs> yeah, it sounds I like uh, yeah i mean it's good like i i've, been, I've joked for years because you know we've talked in in the u.s too a lot in the last like decade about um equality in the sport as how, how many women are in it how many men and um you know, I, I don't know why 25 years ago there weren't very many women climbing but i certainly would have been like to have more of them <laughs> you know when it, it was just a bunch of dudes out there <laughs> it's it's like, fest. no we weren't like yeah exactly like maybe we weren't encouraging it enough or but we certainly were not discouraging it um but anyhow but that's really really fascinating and, and uh i've you know some not something i necessarily um would have expected but yeah, it takes um, a lot of let, people by surprise yeah. yeah i think it's great um, so you, you mentioned the, um, the environment, you know, being out in, you know, in nature and also with a lot of wild animals, which is something also that jumps out. That's very different from what, uh, I've ever experienced. I mean, you know, there's some talk of bears at night when you're camping out in the mountains here, uh, some of the desert areas, you know, you might walk across a rattlesnake, uh, but in general, you know, we do, we just don't have like the interaction that it seems again, watching your videos that you guys have. And also, you know, literally dangerous situations with animals seem to be a possibility and, and, <laughs> you know, insects and everything else. So talk a little bit about that, you know, how you kind of, you know, interact with that as incidences and, uh, you know, how it is part, again, part of your climbing experience in Kenya. <laughs> 
Yeah, you can't avoid here. At least in this part of Africa, you got a lot of megafauna. It's a lot of big wildlife that you're sharing these spaces with. But the thing is, for at least for these communities that live, when you climb in places where you also have people, you have animals, everything, you're used to, they're dangerous and blah, 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 but you're used to them, you live with them, <laughs> you know how to deal with them. And like the warrior culture, a big part of it is being completely fearless. And a huge part of the Maasai tradition until recently is that a, a young man has to kill a lion to gain a certain rank in the community, to go out and kill one. So that's against the law right now. But the fact is, when it comes to animals, you're very, very much just, yeah, people are used to them, they live with them, and it's just there. and. It's very different from a lot of people they're used to the the thing of safaris and driving and look at these animals from windows but when you become a climber in Kenya and you want to now climb in many locations many of these locations and some of the best you have to make peace with encountering these animals on foot and where you're sleeping and blah 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 and most of the time it's perfectly fine it's at least if you are with people who understand how these animals think and are just used to interacting with them, then then it's all good. It's not as extreme as some people would imagine. When you come across a hyena, for example, or a leopard, even lion, you can just scare it away and it runs. That's what happens in most of these places. And then elephants. It's, for me personally, I'm significantly more worried when it comes to the big, big big plant eaters i'm not worried about lions leopards hyenas all of those things it's like ah yeah but something like an elephant <laughs> it requires a lot more reading because if it does decide to come for you even if you have a knife or a spear or unless you have a gun and even with a gun it's just problems so those are the things sometimes <laughs> that can give you stress but yeah usually you just read them you you just read their psychology and see that they're calm or they're fine and you can even just walk past them and they're just grazing and they don't disturb you. Same thing with buffaloes. Sometimes you throw some stones at them and they run away and you just keep walking. But sometimes they have small calves and they and they don't want to go and they're very serious and they're getting very angry and those times you just give them their space. The worst is when you just meet it surprised like this. That's a problem. Because then it can charge if it notices you. For me, the close encounter I had with elephant was we were walking on top of this Mount Ololokwe. The first time we were going there and we were even filming some stuff for documentary. So carrying these big black magic cameras and crash pads and all that stuff up this huge mountain in the bush in a lot of heat. And so we got to the top of the mountain and we were turning the corner and we go through and basically those... The guy who was in front of me, Lecky, he's my very good friend. He just put up his hand, which just means stop. He didn't say anything. Then pointed to the side, and I look, and then there was a big bull elephant 10 meters away from us, but it's behind a bush. It hasn't seen us. <laughs> and if this thing sees us, then the only thing to do is to run, because you can't, at that point, it's just, it's just going to charge. But what we did was we moved back, and then Lecky picked up two stones and threw at the elephant. 
And so when the elephant gets hit like a surprise and doesn't know where it came from, it runs away and it'll come back later to investigate. And so we we hit it with a stone and the thing ran away into the bush. And then we sort of moved forward and to make sure that, because we realized there's other elephants now scattered in that forest, dense forest, so we knew we'd meet more. So like he's a genius, he took a crash pad and he took a stick and whacked the crash pad multiple times, sounded like gunshots. And these animals, they know when they hear gunshots are a problem because they get poached in these areas. So they right. just ran away. Then we just kept going. But yeah, usually elephants, they're big. Incredible. So we see, them, <laughs> we see them before anything like that happens. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's incredible. What a, that's, I mean, talk about an alien situation for a North American climber or European climber anyway. That's, that's awesome. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about, uh, the, the actual climbing, you know, we, yes. as climbers, I think all of us worldwide, we, we, we love to look at pictures and dream of visiting and what's the rock going to be like and what's the climbing's like. And, um, so let's talk a little bit about maybe, you know, start with some of your most frequented areas, favorite areas, uh, trad climbing, sport climbing, what kind of rock, um, what are we looking at in Kenya for opportunities for you to climb? trad there's a lot of trad is if you want to do a substantial amount of climbing you need you need to trad climb or to be ready to do that because mm-hmm. yeah a lot of areas is mostly trad and it's a big part of the ethic here we have a number of bolted crags now not so so many but they're good and they got a good selection of routes but yeah Placing gear is a very big part of climbing in Kenya. It's mostly granite, different variations of it. Or I don't know how to say the gneiss, nice. Mm-hmm. That's uh, yeah, nice. It's hard to protect in many places, but in other places, it forms pretty good, sort of almost like British trad kind of features. You have to be very creative with how you protect it. So. So very often you're not following one continuous crack on that rock type on nice. You actually have to, you climb and you find a slot or a pocket and you play something there and you keep going. But then we have places with basalt because Kenya is very volcanically, it has a very rich volcanic history, especially in the Rift Valley. Is We have two plates moving apart. So you've got a place called Hell's Gate and other places as well where you've got these cliffs formed from the Rift Valley splitting and these volcanoes, and you've got very nice cracks. So there's that. But yeah, it's mostly granite. I don't know of a place that's not granite, maybe at the coast. But otherwise, it's all, all granite, uh, igneous rock, but it's lovely. Though you have to make peace with a lot of loose rock, especially in the north. It's like climbing on an onion. Like half of the <laughs> time, it's... It's just loose, 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 loose things peeling, proper exfoliated, but it's in very cool spots. That's the thing. So you just, <laughs> we say you just try to preserve some of the roots. Just don't pull too hard on anything. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, and then, you know, Mount Kenya, there's also, uh, you know, bigger stuff. So yeah. let's talk about size. I mean, is it generally oh. a lot of cragging, you know, or is, or all the way up to, to, you know, I wouldn't. I don't know if we can call them big walls, but big roots on. on oh, there's big formations. walls for sure. Oh yeah. yeah, there's huge walls in Kenya. 
So yeah, you've got a lot of there's a lot of crags, a lot of boulders, and then we have walls up to I think the biggest one we have here is seven hundred meters high. Seven hundred and twenty meters. <clears throat> it's pretty high. That's the east face of Poi. It's a big wall. Then Mount Kenya you've got you've got walls that are almost the same size as that as well on Batian and Elion and in the past you had ice routes as well. You still have them, but now they're pretty suicidal and maybe there's one day in the whole year that they can be done. Still very dangerous to do them. But yeah, and that's alpine climbing as well, I should specify. We have alpine climbing in Kenya, who would have thought? But it's then it's pretty good and puts you it's it's a very nice spot to be being on that ridge and looking around and looking at the plains below and looking at even those mountains that I'm talking about now in the deserts north of where where my dad grew up is just you can see those mountains on a clear day. It's very nice. And Ololokwe, which is the other area that I frequent more than Mount Kenya, is the biggest section of cliff is maybe four hundred, four hundred and fifty meters high. Yeah. And there's routes that are five hundred meters high with some traversing and yeah, so there's a lot of stuff to do, a lot of variation in Kenya in terms of just the size of the objectives and the seriousness. And do you guys, you know, again, if we're thinking about a, a climbing community at large, but then everybody has their, like their close knit group, you know, the, the guys and the women that you climb with a lot and form kind of the core. I mean, do you guys like swap ideas for, for new routes? Like how, how is the community looking at, um, you know, this just pioneering new, new climbing around the country? Is it, you know, the same as anywhere else networking and talking about like what the possibilities are and who's going to do what and who's got the skills and like kind of banter between people, like what goes on with development? It's definitely there, that sort of an atmosphere, but on a much, much smaller scale because it's not a very big climbing community. And there's a lot of people in the climbing community. I would say even most, the majority, they're not interested in putting up new routes or any of that stuff. They just want to have a nice day at the crack, just do some climbing. Yeah. And some, that's normal anywhere. Yeah, the sport cracks. <laughs> usually, you have an area full of climbing. You have many, 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 many cliffs of so much climbing, but everyone, almost everyone will just be bunched on one sport climbing crack. And sometimes I'm guilty of this myself. Sometimes it's just nice to just do a workout, just pulling hard on some holes and clipping into bolts. But most people, that's sort of the design. You just go to Baboon Cliff or Nemesis where there's many bolted routes and spend the whole day there. But yeah, there's there's a few people putting up routes. There's a number. And because of the climbing community not being huge, we'll just, I'll be putting a route up with... It's hard to have a main climbing partner per se that you're putting up mm-hmm. a route with. It's very often just link up with someone and... You sort of your abilities match quite nicely and you go and you put this thing up and and then the next week there's somebody else who you're putting up a different route with. Sort of like that. But I do have a main climbing partner that I've been putting up routes with or my most notable routes and that's Lecky from Samburu. Yeah, from Ololokwe. So together we've put up some really nice routes in that area. Multi pitch and single pitch as well. You have a connection to to Norway through your mom and have traveled there. Where else have you traveled? Um, and have you traveled outside of 
Kenya and or Africa or, or neighboring countries to to rock climb or to alpine climb. So I mean, I've been to Kilimanjaro in Tanzania when I was fourteen years old. Then I went to Iceland at some point when I was in Norway. We did a little trip to Iceland, part of this school that I went to. I bouldered in Iceland. That was the first time I bouldered outdoors. I've climbed a little bit outdoor in Norway, but not so much. Tiny, tiny bit. And then I've been on a sailing trip to the Shetland Islands. And I've been to a couple other countries, but it's usually just stopovers, just flying from mm-hmm. one country to the next. Yeah. There's a point in, in you know, someone like yourselfs rock climbing, um, and if you're interested in alpine climbing, that you, you know, you look around the world. It's the same for me to, to, to go to these other places and, and, you know, obviously touch and climb on the rock, but also meet the community, see what's going on. I mean, what are your dreams and do you have any opportunities to do that in the future? I think my main focus right now is putting up or just redoing scary routes in, in Kenya. Cause there's a lot of really mm-hmm. hard, really adventurous stuff that just hasn't been done. So I'm really it, it's just that stuff really pulls my attention just here and the stuff that I can do in this country. So there's that's on my mind. But <clears throat> I mean, before I got more heavily into climbing when I was younger, I wanted to do these things in the Himalayas before I realized how commercial it is. And I got a lot more impressed <clears throat> by people doing like really steep things that involve the whole body and athletic moves, but still. There's a small part of me that does want to go to the Himalayas and just go high, really, really, really high and up in the snow and the ice and in those elements. But it's damn expensive. I mean, either it's very expensive or I have to find like a very special partner who will take me along on an expedition to like a, a a proper expedition that's away from the big crowds on one of these mountains trying something whether it's a new route or something like that that's also now a dream of mine and then just yeah going to more countries seeing other places but if there's two things that come to mind it's more objectives in Kenya and then going to the Himalayas but i don't know how that will happen but I'm, i have faith that it will at some point Either I'll get rich enough that I take myself there, or I'll, I'll meet some people <laughs> who will take me there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something will happen. How, how much? I mean, how often are are people um, from outside the country coming in? Um, you know, if you leave out, you know, sort of these big objectives, these kind of you know once in a lifetime things, are people showing up there to rock climb? You know, just uh, showing up at the crags. Oh yes, for sure. Yeah, people are visiting, people are climbing. I'm getting uh, more and more international bookings to go to Ololokwe or to go to Mount Kenya. And then occasionally, once in a blue moon, you get some sponsored or some pro climbers that are now going to to some of the crags that are bolted in the north, for example, is because some people have come down, they've got a lot of bolts and things, and they've, which has been very good. They've just put bolts and they've developed like some of the crags that uh, ethically the kind of crag that you want to bolt and then also put up some harder objective on some bigger walls. So, but that's quite sort of rare and once in a while, 
that you get people mm-hmm. like that coming down but there's a lot of people just coming down for fun to do their own climbing or getting a guide to take them up mount kenya for sure it's happening quite a bit yeah and it's been picking up yeah there was a bit of a pause during 2020-21 we all know why yeah that's awesome i hope from this conversation there's just a clearer picture of what the climbing community is in kenya it's there is rural areas and there is places that are very ancient in sort of the way people live and the resources people have. But then we also have places like Nairobi as well, where there's a climbing gym and where it's basically like, it's just like being in not exactly a European country, but almost the same thing. Funnily enough, it's easier to get locals in the rural areas to climb than it would be to get a city dweller in Nairobi to go climbing if you're talking about sort of local Kenyans yeah who are psyched on just mm-hmm. going and doing things because there's a big part of as the country develops and people are getting educated parents for the longest time just want their kids to go to school and get degrees mm-hmm. and stuff like that and whereas in the rural areas especially in the north we're just herding cows and they have a lot of free time to do warrior things or to like throw like <laughs> shoot bows and and throw spears for target practice and they just have a lot of time to do these crazy things well it may it <laughs> makes sense i mean you 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 know you move to a city you probably in a lot of ways are aspiring to kind of put that behind you right and and move up the social ladder or whatever for it sure. is so Part of that would be disconnecting from nature, unfortunately, yeah, and, yeah. and adventure and things like that. And, you know, at least the way you talk about these tribes and these rural places, it sounds like adventure and the idea of, of you know, pushing yourself is just part of, you know, it's just part of the way people think. And, and, and also sort of, I feel like the playfulness of climbing, um, especially if you put a rope up on something and there were some, some young kids around. I don't think any of them would probably think twice about. Yeah, they all try. They they all want to try. All these warriors in these places, it's happened so often now. And I have a group of clients I'm taking to a cliff somewhere. Just they're always asking, "When are you going? When are you going?" And so when I'm taking my client or two clients along, they just they come and we just set up ropes, and then everyone gets to try something. And Mm -hmm. yeah, everyone is so psyched to do it especially the the warriors that that age group of people they and they're very very competitive everyone is competitive so we'll climb we'll wrestle we'll <laughs> yeah it's a good time it's a lot of fun the vibe climbing in those areas and when i say that climbing isn't super super serious i guess what i mean is the areas that i'm used to climbing or my experience with it is sort of Everything else other than the climbing is awesome. So sometimes it's not even just... The climb is a nice thing to add to this place, but just the fact that you can just get out of your tent and just be looking at elephants just going through the riverbed next to where you're camped, or you interact with these animals, or the, the sort of things that we are... The activities that we're doing, the warrior games that we're playing, all that is just... It's just as much fun as the climbing. The climbing is literally another bonus to add to to what's available in these places. I do want to circle back to the the soloing. And I don't know how you can tell me how big a part of your climbing that is. But, you know, as we talked about this warrior culture, uh, this kind of like 
you know, initiations and all that sort of thing. It, it feels like that like almost fits, you know, pretty lockstep with that. So let's talk a little bit about soloing, your desire to do it, how you got into it. And then I'd I'd love to talk a little bit about this this um the barefoot I think it was on Batian, right? The the, Point the barefoot solo as well. It's another peak um, called Point John. Oh, Point John. But okay. Batian is definitely right. in the crosshairs. It was supposed to be this year, but it was yeah. Okay. We pushed it. I mean, last You're year. Inspired by yeah, the, yeah. the preacher. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even before the preacher, um, I knew that was a thing. Yeah. But there've been all these other projects that have gotten in the way. But hopefully this year. But we'll get there. We'll get there. The thing that's interesting to me is that I feel like soloing kind of at least as as like a, a kind of pursuit is is kind of at both ends of the spectrum a lot of times again these sort of beginning or or uh young climbing communities it's a thing there because it just seems like well that's you yeah. know an easy way to do it if we can't get equipment and like <laughs> yep. you know if it's a small climbing community there's nobody to climb with and then it ends up also at the other end of the spectrum where the expert long-standing climbers are doing it. Um, but how did you, uh, you know, tell me a little bit about, you know, your thoughts around it, your thoughts around the risk, your thoughts around um, why you do it and, and uh, how big a part of your climbing it is. It's definitely a big part of my climbing identity, even though like most free soloists, it's not the type of climbing I do the most. I do the other forms a sure. little bit more. Mm. But it's I had the psychology of soloing, I think even before I set foot on on an actual climb with a rope. I sort of looked at these objectives and thought I always could feel the ultimate of this thing is doing it without a rope. Because I'll see a baboon climbing this thing and it's got hands, it's got feet like me. And it can just climb it and more than anything, not even the the physical whatever because you can you can get to a level where you're strong and you're athletic maybe not exactly as well de- designed for climbing as a baboon so it's a lot lighter than me <laughs> but the, it's it doesn't think about anything it's just climbing it's not thinking that it's dangerous or whatever it's just climbing so from the beginning i felt that if i do get in this thing and i get good at it that's that's much better also it's less faff with equipment and you're just doing it, just magic, just like that. But I didn't solo properly until when I was guiding or leading some expeditions on Mount Kenya as a teenager. Sometimes on the way down, you know the way ropes get stuck. When you're pulling the rope down after an abseil, it gets stuck, properly stuck. You try all kinds of things. And sometimes to save time, I just be like, ah, I don't care even if there's a big storm and the wind is blowing and the snow is coming down. I just free solo, remove the rope and free solo down in sort of very desperate situations. And sometimes when I would succeed, sort of it's a mission. It's not that I've decided to go voluntarily and solo. It's when big trouble and one person has to sacrifice themselves and take this big risk and free this rope. The fact that when I would do that, and I'd succeed, I'd free the rope, and I'd climb back down. That was a strong feeling, it, so that I can make myself that brave in those situations. So that's how I got accustomed to the feeling of soloing. And from there, yeah, I could just pick an objective and do it, an easy objective, and be like, okay, yeah, good, that's simple. That's how the lizards are doing it, and these other animals are doing it. And... 
then I'll do something harder. And it would sort of go on like that and I just progressively push it forward. And it's also, it was easier for me very often because I didn't have a lot of training partners, at least at my age. So if I wasn't guiding and I'd gone to this place in the Rift Valley to climb and it's just me, then I'll just free solo some stuff that I can manage and then go home after that because I don't have a partner with me. It just developed over time like that. And I know a lot of young guys or Kenyans, like especially in the north where I was talking about, who can climb like relatively well. Grades that a lot of seasoned climbers, well, maybe let me not say seasoned, but people who could easily climb a five seven could free solo it. They've never climbed before, but they just wear tire slippers and they just go and they just solo it just magically. So it's just that mindset of you want to not overcomplicate this thing as much. They'll often say, why are you disturbing yourselves with all these ropes and all this metal and all this stuff? They'll just go and climb with their tire slippers. So that's a big part of the (laughs) mentality here. That's fascinating because it's it, that attitude. Actually, I've I've talked about my own little bit of free soloing. It's not something I've pursued hard, but I mean, the first ones that came about for me was when I was guiding as well, and and I would I would bring you know two or three clients up some climb that I'd done yeah. like fifty times, and and I'd just be covered in gear because you got three ropes and you've got you know first aid equipment and like your rack and it was just kind of miserable like the actual act of climbing with all that stuff on you and so um yeah it's it's interesting that they kind of felt the same way of like complicating it with all this stuff and you know, <laughs> kind of almost detracts from it you know yes. so um but let me ask you then about this uh this specific climb that I I again I dipped into a video about it and it's interesting because you chose to do it barefoot. Hang on. Um, Before we go so there, you, you're right. Oh, yeah. This thing has finished just now. So okay, let cool. me just refresh it. That'll take like one minute. Okay, cool. I'll see you in a minute. No worries. And we can continue. Okay, cool. So I was asking about that project. About cold feet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was... I never even knew about the that Meru guy yet, the one who the preacher who did the free soloing in the seventies or eighties, but I just came up with something new. I said, Okay, let me climb something on Mount Kenya barefoot. Initially the plan was to do Point John and Nelion with ropes barefoot. And what really fueled me to do it was the amount of people that said that it's impossible. Because of my level of confidence that it was, <laughs> at least in myself, yeah. Because I know I have hard feet. I know I can withstand a lot of discomfort and low temperatures and hot temperatures or whatever. So I knew 100% without question I can do it. It'll be difficult, but I can manage. And it was just perfect that everyone I spoke to without fail 
were placing it at pretty much impossible. This even included, I was trying to do research before this project of people who've done barefoot free solos on peaks of a technical nature at high altitude before. So there was some people in this Alpine library, I'm not sure what it was, but there's a site I tried to get to just to get any records of anything like that done anywhere in the world. And people weren't really finding anything. Sort of a steep mountain, a steep cliff that's at high altitude, you know, 4,000 meters and above, that's been free soloed barefoot. And I just couldn't find it. And they said, it's like we strongly don't advise this. It's like there's barefoot climbers, there's barefoot free soloists, (laughs) there's barefoot boulderers, and there's soloists who solo at high altitude, but barefoot free soloing at high altitude, (laughs) yeah, strongly not recommended. (laughs) So that's what everyone said. And then I was like, this is exactly what I need to do. And so then I just went and I did it. But yeah, I got a, before doing it, my friend from childhood is a filmmaker. I teamed up with him that we go and we make a little film about it. And that's what we did. The objective now changed to the barefoot free solo of Point John later, just because I thought that's significantly better than doing those two peaks with ropes. But barefoot, I'd rather just combine it into doing this one peak without shoes, without rope, at least on the way up. I did abseil back down because free solo barefoot down climbing, the same thing would be next level. And at that time, I wasn't there That's for the next guy. Yeah, when, I mean, in the future, (laughs) I'm sure I can do it. Maybe even now, but I would practice for that. I would actually get on the rock and practice down climbing it. So, but that's, yeah, that's essentially how that thing came about. I was also at that time in a headspace where I wasn't very proud of where I was in life and what I was doing. And at that time, I was significantly more obsessed with becoming a very successful sponsored climber or something like that as well. And I just had enough of my life, you know, and I said, you know what, I'm taking a risk. I'm going back to Kenya. I'm going to invest in this documentary with my friend and then I'm going to do this thing that I like very much. And so that's what I did. And I learned a lot of valuable lessons from that experience and in some small way definitely did impact the trajectory of my life now. Because at least now I can can say that I'm able to make a decent career out of being in the mountains. It doesn't have to be being sponsored. Well... (laughs) Let me let me push you a little bit on that. You yeah. know, lessons learned, um, that kind of thing. What what did you learn from doing this thing? And and the other question I have is that it sounds like you did sort of minimal physical preparation for it. You know, what what did you do mentally? So two questions. Let me rephrase that. So yeah, tell me a little bit about um the lessons you learned. What what are you getting at with that? Well, it's just basically making a making a film. That's one thing. I'm personally not, I wouldn't call myself for these projects. I haven't been a filmmaker. I've been more a subject, but just because of the nature of things and because it's such a small team, I end up having to be very much involved in the other parts of the project, like editing and funding it and and et cetera, and the logistics of it and whatnot. So I learned a lot in that department. I learned a lot about yeah, climbing films and storytelling. And in terms of getting to know more people for some reason, yeah, that ascent was definitely the best known ascent that I've done, even to date. 
I definitely don't think it's the most oppressive, impressive ascent I've done. Not even close, but it's iconic and it stands out. So everyone knows, so many people know about it. And But through that project now, I've gotten in touch with people, gotten to know more people and networking cannot be, knowing people is big. It doesn't matter which country you're in, but it's a huge part of how we progress as people is what I've seen is who you know, who you make friends with and which contacts you have and which contacts they can link you to. And I've just gotten to know a lot of people who've who've been sort of key in my development as a person. And yeah, that's that's how I can say it sort of vaguely. That's my feeling about it. And it's just the little things mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. just the little exposure that I got from that project just grew. It just led to one thing that led to another thing that led to another thing and that went on and on and on. If it wasn't for Cold Feet, I wouldn't have met the director of the next, the main documentary that you've probably been seeing on my feed that we've been working on. I wouldn't have, I probably wouldn't have met him. And we've been working on something that's on a much bigger scale, even in terms of budget, in terms of quality in terms of the actual objective of that story so yeah again if it wasn't for that that wouldn't have happened and working on this other film has has grown me a lot as a climber as even a mountain guide so yeah I could go on on and on and on about the effects of cold right. feet yeah that were beyond just that young climber's dream of oh now i'm going to get sponsorship right. that's that does, doesn't work like that yeah, but what it did is much better for me. It just gave me tools, sort did, of me. Yeah. Did you what? What about the climb? I mean, did it end up challenging you the way you thought it might? I mean, <laughs> you know, what what about the climb? So I had two expectations of it. Either it was going to be very easy, or it was going to be like this is going to kill me. So I don't want to do it. <laughs> and it ended up being option A. So it was just. Oh really? Like if you now if you've seen the film, there's a section where I talk about the night before. Even on the actual day, it was windy as hell, and that was intimidating me. When I was sleeping in the hut, listening to the roof almost getting peeled off by the wind, I was like, ah, yeah, yeah. And then also the uncertainty, because I'd never done anything like that before. I'd climbed barefoot a lot, but I'd never climbed free soloed barefoot on a big mountain, so I was nervous about that. And then the wind, of course, and the following morning as well, walking up to the base and getting thrown around by that wind at the base of the climb, putting on shoes, almost falling over because of wind. I was thinking, now I'm going to be free soloing and the same wind is going to be beating me around. But we started up and it ended up being fine. It ended up being very easy. Much easier than I would have dreamed. But the thing is, at the end of the day, it's still a free solo and every time you finished a pitch, at least a pitch with some significance, no matter how easy it is, you know that if you grab a loose rock or you make a mistake, because I didn't rehearse any of the moves whatsoever. I'd done the route sort of in, in the past. I'd done it one or two times in in the past. So I roughly knew which pitch is hard or easy or which pitch is more <clears throat> complicated, though they're all pretty easy pitches. But yes, it ended up being simple, but... Of course, you get to the top and you know you finished a free solo and there was every possibility that you could have stepped on the wrong thing and you could have fallen down. So I always have respect for that element of free soloing. 
even if it really didn't end up being challenging, my feet didn't end up being too cold, even it snowed as we were abseiling down the peak, it was fine. Yeah, the cold was never a problem. The <laughs> rock being rough was never a problem. I just had my toenail just peeling a little bit back because it was too long to begin with. But, yeah. <laughs> well, those are the things you have to learn about. It, it, it was a brand <laughs> new sport. You had no idea, like, what. <laughs> you you invented a sport in a way. <laughs> um, so <laughs> now, you know, but now you know how to trim your nails beforehand. Yes, so, yes. Um, you can put that in your book. But, mm. uh, yeah. It it's cool. I mean, uh, and again, this is available on YouTube on your site. Cold Feet mm-hmm. um, is where I I dipped into it, and and uh, it it's kind of I you know talking about this warrior mentality again, and and I'm fascinated by that because it's you know it's such a part of of what you know outsiders like me understand about Kenya, um, and the fact that it's incorporated into the climbing is is pretty cool and and different. Um, but it seems to fit. I mean this 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 barefoot thing, it's often, you know, the part of the way people are traveling in the country and p- part of the culture as well. And, um, and then also, like you said, with, with people, you know, thinking like, why are we complicating this? You know, when, when these animals, these lizards, these baboons can do it without all this crap, like, why can't we? And, uh, I mean, was that in your thinking as far as like, why barefoot? For sure. Yeah. So it's, it's just that thing of, how good can I climb when I'm when I don't have so many technical aids? And shoes is a big one, and I can say that for a fact. I much prefer climbing with shoes. It's it's a game changer. A shoe can be the difference between climbing something or falling off it when you're climbing at your limit, without question. So yeah, that's why I was like, okay, I eliminate the rope and I eliminate shoes. Those two things. Shoes particularly because of just the fact of movement and also because I was thinking we are at altitude, we want to experience these elements as it is from a movement perspective. My feet is what's in contact with the rock, my feet and my hands. So my hands are bare, my feet are bare. And let's see how I move now, how my movement is affected. And I just climbed it like that and that was, that was a big part of the the motivation and and yes it's that thing of kids in rural areas in Kenya like rural rural areas people just run around barefoot it's fine and people get tough feet and my feet were quite tough when I was and yeah they were very 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 tough when I was very small then I started being taken to school and wearing shoes more often and they got a little bit softer but not that much softer and for me and maybe it's something similar to muscle memory as soon as my feet start touching hard surfaces again they become hard very quickly it just takes like one week or two weeks to for the skin to just go back to what it used to be but it was just i wanted to use some of those cheat codes that i'd been blessed with since i was small i just use it in the mountain and i'd been in norway which is my mom's country that's my link to norway for those who Maybe wondering why Norway? Why has he spent time in Norway? My mom is from Norway, so I've spent a little bit of time there. And I know that I can handle cold conditions nicely. But even the time I spent on Mount Kenya before that, when I was a teenager, there's times you're just sleeping, getting snowed on with the substandard sleeping bags, no bivy bags, and just surviving a whole night. 
so cold. Mentally, I had everything going in my favor just because I knew what I'd been exposed to in the past and what I'd been able to withstand. I don't know the connection to, uh, like the connection to nature is is something we talk about in climbing all the time. But it it seems like that is is much more deep rooted in your community than I think it is in mine anyway, just from talking to you. And, and again, when you were talking about the animals and understanding them and living with them and, um, and it's, yeah, it's just like a kind of a gold standard of, of connection to your environment that you guys seem to be fostering, um, within the climbing community. Um, do you have a, any sort of comment on that? I mean, these mountains, specifically Mount Kenya is we think God lives on Mount Kenya or, at least that's the old, the traditional roots before the missionaries came along. That was the home of, that's where the God lives. And for many communities, not just Meru, even the Maasai, mountains are very significant in that way. And even so, when people are praying or when people build houses, they build a house facing the mountain. Uh, that could be Mount Ololoko, it could be Mount Kenya. So there's that natural now connection to these mountains as just people who come from close to those areas that's one of the reasons it is very special to climb in northern kenya with the samburu who've been herding cows around that sacred mountain of theirs now they're able to take charge of the climbing that's happening there and the development of the roots it's different when we're climbing and exploring and putting up roots or doing big scary free solos on these mountains because they mean a lot more to us than what at least from being an outsider looking in on a lot of the other things that I see people climbing around the world sometimes it's it's a different kind of connection when that place is so close to your blood and to your ancestry and you haven't had the skills or the the training or the opportunities yet until now to go out and make the most of the exploration of of these environments. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Peter for doing that, connecting all the way from his home in Kenya. And if you want to get in touch with Peter, just for beta or to chat, or maybe to hire him to get you around the country in the mountains there. He said the best thing to do for now is just DM him at afro underscore vertical on Instagram. He'll get back to you. He got back to me. Also, check out his YouTube channel, Peter Natuli, and uh, that documentary, Cold Feet. It's pretty awesome. Kind of a weird project. But it's mostly about just climbing in Kenya and who Peter is, and it's a great video. Okay. It's so cold in Colorado still. It's the end of March. And yes, I know, moisture brings life and we need it. But man, am I over it. It's so cold here. It was like 7 degrees the other morning on like the 25th. Ugh. Anyhow, hopefully you're finding better weather out there. Getting after it this spring or chomping at the bit like I am. But of course, when you get out there and dust off the cobwebs from the winter, don't forget to check your knots.